Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can also be enjoyed on the go as audio podcast edition from iTunes and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott, Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is of the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and grab one. Great way to start off the new year. My guest today is musician, producer, and engineer Jim Callen, who's also a founder of JDC Records, formerly a record distributor and presently a Southern California-based record store. For the purposes of this program, though, Callen's big claim to fame is having served as one of P-Funk's chief recording engineers for many of their best-known albums of the 1970s. That list includes timeless funk classics like Funkadelic's albums, Let's Take It to the Stage, Hardcore Jollies, Parliament's Chocolate City, my all-time fave, Mothership Connection, which there's a gold record behind me for that, um, The Close of Dr. Funkenstein, live P-Funk Earth Tour, and then also Bootsy's Rubber Band, Stretching Out, and All the Names Bootsy Baby, Eddie Hazel's Games, Dames, and Guitar Things, perhaps the best title ever, and Fred Wesley and the Horny Horns, A Blow for Me and a Two for You. Just ahead, we'll find out how Callan got into music, his path to hooking up with the U.S. funk mob, what it was like being at the center of the peak of the P-Funk experience, as well as other projects of his and what he's up to nowadays. So with all that, I'm delighted to officially welcome Jim Callen to the Truth and Rhythm Studios. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, nice day outside here in California. You know, you're back east, right? I am. We've had the uh, the bomb vortex or whatever they're calling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my prayers go with you. <laughs> Fortunately, we've been spared snow where I am, but it's been uh, sub-zero wind chill. So. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and you're coming to us from uh, San Pedro, right? Port of Los Angeles, yep. Yeah. So we started our distribution business here in the 80s. And uh, we still have it going, by the way, but although it's minimal compared to what it was then. And uh, we still have the record label going and uh, the record store, of course, yeah. Well, I certainly know that area well. I grew up out there and I have the Lakers hat still, you know. I see, yeah. Um, and um, lived in uh, Culver City, Santa Monica, that area. So, yeah, I miss it, especially uh, when the weather's like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also wanted to share with you, Jim, that um, I'm quite familiar with your, with your label because no. Know, throughout the 80s, I was a, a disc jockey, a mobile disc jockey okay. out there. And so I was uh, a member of, maybe you've heard of, uh, Impact and Resource Record Pools. Sure. We used to service those pools. <laughs> yeah, I was a longtime uh, member and uh, used to get those 12 inches with the JDC on them. And I yeah. spun many of those. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, we're going to dig into uh, your backstory and then get into some P-Funk. So... How did you first get into music? I know that you also uh, uh, play some some instruments, and you know what's your background and influences, and, and where are you from, Jim? Uh, when I attended UCLA, uh, I started a band with uh, 
some guys I knew and we were playing fraternity parties and school dances and so forth and kept going with that. And uh, eventually the band signed to Warner Brothers and we did an album, uh, The Glass Family Electric Band in the 60s, which uh, was reissued on vinyl last year with a bonus album. And uh, so, okay, so I did that for a while. We went on the road. We played with a lot of the groups of, of the time, the Grateful Dead, the Doors, Janis Joplin. Uh, everybody was just coming up then, so it wasn't like the, these big superstars like they have become now. And then I got tired of doing that around the 70s. I got interested in studio work after watching our producer and engineer on our album. So uh, next step for me was I did some production and I became a recording engineer because that's where I really wanted. I was very interested in sound. And uh, I worked at the studio the guy wanted to, to make it a country and western studio so we were working with people like glenn campbell and mac davis and people like that and it was cool but one night my uh one of the other engineers i worked with who had done a couple sessions with funkadelic and he said to me hey man tonight these guys are coming in from detroit and they're they're really kind of crazy guys. And would you just kind of do me a favor? Would you work it tonight? And I said, sure. Well, for me, it was love at first sight when the guys came in because I was working with what I consider to be real music again. What About what year was that? That had to be maybe 74. They came into the studio and we cut that night. We cut Red Hot Mama and standing on the verge of getting it on and it was jumping i mean it was rocking and jumping and i said hallelujah this is this is a good match and uh, also it was since i had been kind of a hippie in the uh, 60s and these guys were kind of hippies in the 70s so we had a lot in common in that area anyway that led to many uh, many recordings which were always mixed at that studio i always mixed them at hollywood sound because that had the sound and actually uh, you know we were smoking a lot of pot we were dropping a lot of acid no hard drugs just pot and acid just like in the 60s with us hippies and uh, you know they used to give us a lot of shit because hey you're never going to get a hit you guys are too stoned in there well, we had the first million seller come out of that studio. And much to the chagrin of the owner of the studio who wanted it to be a mecca for country music, all of a sudden it became a mecca for black music. So we had Earth, Wind and Fire recording there and uh, you know, Crusaders, Boss Gags came in to record low down there. Uh, and the studio got known as, you know, the place to go for that kind of R&B funk sound. But uh, anyway, that's how I got into that. And wow. after so, George told me funk is greater than God, I left and started my own label a few years later. <laughs> wow. So 
did you get formal training for the engineering or did you kind of pick it up from others? Did you have a mentor? How did that? Uh, I had, you know, I had other guys teaching me and I was observing and, uh, you know, I just fell into it. I wasn't a real technical guy, but I was a real good sound guy. I could pull sound out of the board, you know, uh, and I, I got to tell you, your favorite album, Mothership Connection, I think that was my greatest accomplishment sound-wise uh, with, with the P-Funk guys. Everything fell into place in that, and everything I tried worked. And the way we put it together, it was, it was magical, magical. Just knew that was going to be a big record, which it was. Well, I got to tell you, the sonic differences in, uh, you know, going from the earlier westbound Funkadelic records to the, the Warner Brothers Funkadelic and, and Parliament um, after Chocolate City, especially starting with Mothership, the, the richness and the clarity of the sound was just so remarkably fuller and richer. Um, yeah. what, do you, what do you attribute that to? Uh, magic. You know, just it just came together. You know, I worked with a lot of people and we just for some reason, this combination of things worked really well. And I must say that Bernie Worrell and I became very good friends from the very beginning. And he was classically trained and he was a great composer. Uh, he could do anything on the keyboard and his tastes were not limited to any one kind of music. And working with him was a magic combination too sound wise so i attribute a lot of that to bernie in particular the other guys too but bernie in particular and, and we had we had a, a thing going on between us which was really helpful to that sound as well i mean uh, you know the guys recorded uh, tear the roof off the sucker in in Detroit with Jim Vitti. Then they brought the tapes out to me. It was like a 15 minute jam with a zillion different instruments. And the first thing I did was strip it clean and just start with the kick drum and build it up till we had only about five instruments and cut the thing in half and then start working from there. And somehow that made, that opened up the air or the space that we needed to get that sound, which really prevalent especially on that album uh but i i credit uh, bernie a lot and uh it's interesting when we did the uh when we did eddie hazel's games dames and guitar things we switched places bernie became the engineer and i became the piano player on uh, california dreaming so we you know we had that kind of thing going on too we used to jam up in my house in topanga canyon and uh Love Bernie. He passed away last year, and we, we released his final album uh, on our record label, a uh, joint venture with his wife, Judy. Uh, I, I credit a lot to him. And Eddie and I, too. Eddie, you know, when Eddie was in Lompoc, uh, I took him a guitar up there so he could play in the two years he was incarcerated. That's where he learned California Dreamin'. Uh, he didn't even know the song, and one of the other guys there taught it to him. So he played it for me one day. We're sitting on the lawn outside uh, 
And I said, Eddie, we've got to record this when you get out. And that's what we did. So it was all good. Those were great times, those three or four years I was with all the guys. Fred Wesley, another one, another great guy to work with. And George, who called himself the referee, was always, uh, one thing I'll say about George is he always let everybody do their best. Didn't try to hold you back from doing your best. And so that made for good recordings too. What, what role did George take or what was he like um, in the studio when the music was being created and also after the fact, you know, around the engineering or, or, or post-production process? Ah, you know, George, he's a Leo and he's very, but he also is laid back and lets you, like I said, he lets you do your thing. Or some guys, some producers come in there and they want to get in, you know, let me, oh, this will sound better. Let me try this. Let me, now George was pretty much never told you what to do and neither with the musicians or myself or anybody. He just kind of let it happen. And that was a beautiful way of letting things develop. He, he called himself the referee. That's what he did. And, and you can see not that he was a referee so much, but that he was a, a, an enabler of this thing to go on this mood in the studio where you could, you could do your best without anybody trying to block you. Uh, so I think that was his genius. And also, uh, you know, I'd have to sometimes with George, too many people would come in there and it would get too chaotic. And I'd have to say, George, we got to let some of these people out of here. And when I would record George singing, George was a really good singer. Uh, an example is all your goodies are gone. You know, I, I had everybody leave the studio. I turned the lights down. I put George up in the uh, recording area with one microphone. And man, he sang his ass off on that. We, we just, we were able to work together really well. So there's some other things I can say about George, but I'm not going to. <laughs> So, so uh, Gary Vitti was in um, Jim Vitti. Jim Vitti, sorry, he was in Detroit, and and you were in California. Sound. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you guys communicate a lot, or what was that relationship? No, not too much. I mean, I'd I'd go out there, uh, you know, and be around, and for some of the recordings there, and but uh, for the overdubs and the mixing, it was all done at in uh, Hollywood, Hollywood Sound. I mean, we we worked at various studios, worked at the Electric Ladyland in New York, and you know, when the group was on the road, we'd do recording in different areas. But generally speaking, they would cut tracks in Detroit and uh, then bring them out to LA. Not always though, like I told you, Red Hot Mama, and standing on the verge, we did that in Studio B at Hollywood Sound the first night I met them, which was, I mean, pulling off those two recordings, 
the first night was nothing short of miraculous. That is yeah. incredible. What a way yeah. to start. Yeah, man. <laughs> George used to tell me, uh, you know, I say, you know, you guys are like, remind me so much of the way we were in the 60s. And he said, well, you know, everything happens 10 years later in the ghetto. So that's why. And in the beginning, it was the same. I mean, they were only doing psychedelics and pot. No hard drugs, no liquor, no nothing, you know. Then that degenerated over time, just like it did with the hippies. But for me, I got to, you know, continue my hippie hippiness into the 70s because of that. So, yeah. Jim, for those that maybe haven't been in a recording studio and aren't that familiar with it, could you just kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of makes um, someone that does that um, more skilled than someone else? And, and what are some of the nuances or special uh, qualities that an, an engineer can bring to, to the party, so to speak? Oh, I think it's like anything else, you know, you just do it enough, you get good at it. And there are little, little things you learn a lot by mistake. You'll do something and it'll be a mistake, but it'll sound really good. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it just takes time like everything else. It, you know, if you're going to do it good, it's going to take time. And I, I can't attribute it to any one thing. It's, uh, you know, and, and like I say, sometimes there's magic and sometimes there's not. And uh, we just had a lot of magic with, with P-Funk. Do you think it helped that you did have an actual musical background too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Especially, you know, I could communicate with Bernie in that way and maybe a way that George couldn't. Uh, and George not being a musician himself, but a, a singer. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely very helpful. You know, and it's also like you can, you can arrange the structure of a, a song, you know, that might be just a free jam, you know, which is cool, but well, let's let's make it into a song. I always would think of the song, you know. So yeah, very helpful. To to what extent do you think that you know the classics or hits are made in their initial form versus how they end up being edited later on or post post production added to it? Like you mentioned, how you brought the clarity of sound to tear the roof off. Um, you know, can you kind of make uh, silk out of a sow's ear in that process? No, no. The, you have to have something there to begin with. And <clears throat> fortunately, you had guys that were good players and, and could improvise and just create things out of nothing. I mean, sometimes those, those jams would turn out to be three different records because you'd have so many instruments going on well let's just use this this and this for this record and let's use that that and that for the other record when you got good players and they're loose they're not uptight uh, makes all the difference in the world but no you cannot you cannot make something out of nothing i guess they can do that today with all the digitalist yeah. stuff but but couldn't do it then <laughs> 
So we talked a little bit about Eddie, about Bernie. Who are some of the other uh, guys that you remember that were particularly, um, you know, adept in the studio environment um, or in the, um, you know, engineering post-production part of it? Mm. Uh, Bernie was the main guy by, by far, okay. Eddie was just dependable as hell when you're going to record him. I mean, he he was going to rip regardless. And by the way, his singing too. I recorded a song called uh, Love is Something, which I wrote and played guitar on for, and it got the Brides of Funkenstein their deal on Atlantic. And I'm always pissed at George for not letting it be on the album when it came out. And so is Don Silva pissed at him for that. And we don't even have the tapes anymore. And it was such a great, great recording. Anyway, with Eddie, Eddie showed up at the session. I cut the basic track with my own band. And then Eddie showed up at the session for the vocals. And he didn't play guitar on it, but he sang. And initially, I said, hey, Eddie, I don't, I don't need you on this, man. I really don't. Oh, please, please, man. I can, I feel it. And I said, okay, all right. So he sang incredibly on this. I mean, it was, it moved everybody. You could not sit down in the studio. You couldn't do anything but just look there in awe. And, uh, you know, so things like that, I mean, that was incredible, his contribution. Uh, and not, just as a guitar player. But getting back to the other guys, okay? The guys that I uh, thought really did well, I mean, Gary Scheider was easygoing and nice, but he contributed a lot. When Glenn Goins came around, uh, he sang like, like an angel. Uh, of course, Bootsy, when he came on board, you know, you had Bootsy. <laughs> And he con he contributed a lot, and probably as a producer had more input than anybody else at a certain point, other than Bernie. But uh, who else? Who else? Ooh, so so many guys, you know. But the, the oh, Fuzzy and uh, all those singers, Ray, uh, in the beginning. I love their harmony. I love what they did. And I'm sorry that I can't remember all their names. Grady. Calvin. Calvin. Oh, oh, just such great guys, you know. Ray. Ray, yeah. Ray was the sweetest guy. Um, you know, and I meet now tons of people that say they were in Funkadelic or P-Funk, and I don't know who they are, but I think what happened after this with the golden age, if you will, you know, there are many guys came and went in the band. And uh, so I don't know much about that, what happened post me. So but, were, uh, were you at times uh, ever, you know, spending the night in the studio or? Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah, so well, that must have been a crazy uh, experience and environment. Oh yeah. Well, we were smoking a lot of pot, like I said, uh, and we did take acid occasionally. And uh, it's it's very interesting because there was a time when 
Earth, Wind, and Fire were in one studio there, and we were in the other. And, you know, you'd look in the window to the studio, and it'd be this just haze of smoke in our room. <laughs> and those guys were like, they would take a break and go out for ice cream. <laughs> and they they were sweet guys, nice guys. I love them to death and made such good music. But so they got to calling us, uh, you know, we were the Rolling Stones of uh, black music and Earth, Wind and Fire were the Beatles, you know, the nice clean cut guys and we were the whatever. <laughs> But I had a great satisfaction with Ramona, who was the uh, the woman at the front desk. Every time I'd come out of the studio, you know, she'd say, you guys will never get a hit in there. You're smoking all that pot. And you can't do anything right, possibly. And when we hit with Mothership Connection, you know, it was three million copies worldwide. And it was such a massive hit. Nobody had ever come close coming out of that studio with anything like that. I just love to see Ramona in the morning and just give her a little smile, walk back into the studio. <laughs> how, how, how did the, the vibe overall change with, with all the musicians in P-Funk once uh, they hit it big like that? Well, in comes cocaine, which is okay for a minute, and then comes crack, which was not okay. And you know, with a few exceptions in the post-golden era, like um, Atomic Dog and One Nation Under a Groove, I thought things started to go downhill, even as early as uh, Dr. Funkenstein. Uh, and I think this happened so many times with groups and music and you know in the beginning it's good and it's fresh and it's and then for some reason you can't recapture it and people start being angry at one another and the whole vibe that you had to begin with which made the music so magical is gone so no man well that that's definitely the case and was a shame. Um, but I mean, the run of Mothership Connection, Clones uh, of Dr. Funkenstein, Funkentelecky, and Mother Booty Affair, phenomenal run of those four albums. I mean, they all have strong concepts, strong music. Um, right. Yeah. Then the right. drop off was pretty precipitous after that. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. That's probably the, the end of it. Yeah. And Eddie had passed away. Well, he hadn't passed away, but he was not active anymore. Uh, yeah. Anyway, no, a lot of good music came from that era. So, but you were also involved in all those other albums I mentioned as well, right? I, I was not involved in Motor Booty Affair, and I was not involved in uh, Funk and Teleki. But you were still doing, uh, Eddie's album came out in 78. Um, so that was that same time frame. It Was that held for a while? Or why were you still working uh, on one thing and not another? I, are you sure it was 78? I'm not sure. You know, I Maybe 77. Um, 
77 yeah so that was the last albums i recall doing were ah the name is bootsy and stretching out and bootsy's rubber band and fred wesley and the horny horns and uh a couple albums there and parlette and rides of Funkenstein and so we, we were doing all these offshoot albums after Mothership Connection, you know, it was like, okay, everybody gets to do an album now, all the members of the band. Uh, I don't know, you know, I... Literally, George told me one day in the studio that he thought funk was bigger than God. And I don't know where he was coming from with that, but that's sticks in my head as the time I remember where I decided to get off the ship. But yes, he he made great records without me. He made uh, One Nation Under a Groove without me. Um, not just nice. Yeah, yeah, not just knee deep, right. Atomic Dog. But, uh, you know, we still had Bernie and Bernie was contributing he was laying the foundation for those records. I can't stress to you how much Bernie was so important to that In whole era. Yeah. You know, the thing about P-Funk is, and you talked about this a little bit, Jim, but you know, the vocals were so elaborate and complex and yeah. you know, the, the rhythm and also the, the horn arrangements. What, you know, how did you kind of make sure that they would um, not be drowned out, that they would fit where they need to fit? Um, and, and did you have to approach each of those kind of differently? You know, the rhythm, the vocals, the 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 guitar, so forth. Yeah, I mean, as I told you before, the main thing was making space for the the sound to come out. I mean, if you have too much stuff in there, no matter how good it is, it's going to cancel everything out. You, you know, your ears need to hear clearly the vocals, the horns, the guitar. The rhythm is most important. You know, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. So you had to. Um, you ha had to. Spike or spike or something? No, this guy's doing an interview with me. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. yeah uh, you know, you had to... I think space is the most important thing. And like I told you, I, I developed this thing because there was so much going on there where I would start with the kick drum. Just the kick drum. Then I would add the rest of the drums little by little. Then I would add the bass. And then... I would decide what else belongs in there and what doesn't. And uh, I mean, the crowning achievement for this for me was uh, swing down, sweet chariot, stop and let me ride. Where in one part, I took out everything but Bernie and the drums. And we achieved this kind of real spacey, just beautiful sound by doing that. So I think mo less is more in terms of, you know, placing the instruments. Uh, but Fred Wesley and his horns, by the way, I didn't have to do much. 
He knew what to play. He knew where to play it, you know. He knew not to get in the way of a vocal or, a, you know, of something else that was going on. So uh, I was working with great guys, I mean, no doubt about it. It's interesting to hear you say that, you know, the, uh, the, the Hazel track and the Rose track, with all the stuff that was coming out and all this different, uh, you know, offshoots and everything, it sounds like there's still some good material that maybe never got out there. Oh, yeah. Love is something, but not the way George put it out later. And I think, man, you know, George wanted to be in control all the time. And I think he sabotaged it because it was so good. It was such a funky track and it was so soulful. And when he put it out on some Japanese compilation, probably to fill space, he took off all the funk and he added this syrupy saxophone, which made which turned it into an awful awful record unfortunately the 24 track tape is somewhere and i have a very poor cassette mix of the original mix we did that got the brides their deal on atlantic but it's lost in the ethos somewhere and until we somebody comes up with it or finds it uh you know but Whoa, what a track. If you, it's legendary among P-Funk fans. But, you know, in, in George's version, you can't even hear Eddie, for one thing. You, it, it's like the king of funk takes out all the funk. <laughs> and he does it to preserve his place in the stratosphere. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Well, I tell you, there's been a lot of uh, tracks, especially in the um, some of the '80s, but really in the '90s and, and afterwards, that had the um, foundation of being something strong. But however they mixed it or whatever, um, yeah. you know, kind of undermined it. Yeah, so. I, I have some things that uh, Bernie gave me that uh, are, are pretty amazing that we've never done th anything with, uh, that he recorded with with uh, the other guys. And yeah, yeah, there's stuff out there. There's probably a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> Bernie, you know, you know, a lot of these shows that I'm doing, I mean, I was always a big fan, but to me, his legend is just growing ever bigger all the time because I, I interviewed Bill Laswell not too long ago. And according to him, he recorded probably like a hundred albums with him alone. Yeah. Just unbelievable. They did a lot of, they did a lot of work together. Yeah. <clears throat>